selection strategies, teleportation, and libido during grief. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Ask Science Mike! Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. I'm your host, Mike McCarg. The internet calls me Science Mike just because I love science. This is a show that is not about my expertise, but about taking questions without judgment. And this week, all those questions come from my patrons. So it's a patron special. And what do you say? Let's get it started. May is going to be a big month. Uh, really excited about May because I've got three events happening with the liturgists. I'd love to see you at if you're in the neighborhood. May 10th, I'll be in Boulder, Colorado, that is. And May 11th, I'll be in Portland, Oregon. Both of those are for our new tour uh, called Tabs and Wafers that is about how to create a healthy spirituality in a post-church, post-Christian, post-deconstruction, post-post-post context. It's something we've been asked to do a lot, and we're really excited to try this for the first time ever in Boulder and Portland. Tickets are still available, and uh, tickets are selling well, so I I think you'll see us announce more dates uh, in the near future all over the country. So uh, we're going to bring Tabs and Wafers near you. Whether it's called Tabs and Wafers or not, I don't know. Uh, It seems like a lot of people don't really get the title, so there may be a rebrand, but the events are definitely happening. Also, we've had a couple of, literally a couple of cancellations for Kin. That's our liturgist men's retreat that's led by me, Michael Gunger, and Hillary McBride. Uh, It's happening in Ohio. It's happening this May. And now we do have not one, but two spots available. So if you wanted to join me, Hillary, Michael, and 30 other people, I guess 29 other people, if you're one of them, uh, in Ohio this May to kind of figure out what it means to be a healthy man in 2019, gosh, we'd love to see you. We've done several Kins, and uh, they are really life-changing. They have changed my life. I have uh, learned things about myself and grown as a person in ways that I could have never anticipated, and I'm really excited to do another Kin event this May. So that's what's happening in May. More dates coming soon. You can learn about all of these by going to AskScienceMike.com and clicking on that events button in the menu. Our first question this week came from Paul, and he said, You've expressed belief in a God that is the ground of all being. Einstein's God, a reductionist, left hemisphere God. You've also expressed belief in a God of mysticism and subjective experience, a God of feeling and intuition, a holistic right hemisphere God. Do you ever feel the need to bridge the gap between these two gods? Can you say they are the same? Or do we need a God for each cerebral hemisphere? So Paul is talking about, um, I guess, my opus. <laughs> the thing I'm, I'm most known for uh, is, is my approach to a spirituality that I find to be compatible 
with the understanding of the world we find through the sciences, but still leaves uh, room and openness for spiritual experiences and indeed for encounters with God and participation in great religious traditions like Christianity or Islam or Judaism. And um, yeah, I guess that final question, do you ever feel a need to, quote, bridge the gap, unquote, between these two gods? I don't feel any need to bridge a perceived gap um, at all. That's nothing I, I really think about anymore. I don't try to reconcile these things because I don't see them as being in conflict. Here's how that works. Whenever I think about physical reality, you know, this thing we call the universe, I am an empiricist. What's an empiricist? An empiricist is someone who places confidence in their beliefs in proportion to the amount of evidence they have to support that belief. So I'm highly confident that 2 plus 2 equals 4 because I can run any number of experiments and prove that to be the case. I can take, I've got little containers of mints here, and I have four of them, right? So I can take two containers of mints over here, and then I can take two containers over here, and I can push them together, and I can count one, two, three, four mint containers. So I have a lot of confidence. No matter how many experiments I run, and I can run experiments myself, I can verify that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Okay? So I have a lot of confidence in that belief. I have a lot of confidence that uh, the Earth's climate is changing and that human actions are playing a role, even a significant role in that climate change. But I can't test those things myself. I can review the evidence that scientists have found, and I can I can review how the scientific process works and my understanding of it and be confident in that belief, but I am not as confident that climate change is happening and that humans are causing it as I am that 2 plus 2 equals 4, although I still have a very high degree of confidence that climate change is happening. So what happens to me when I view the world empirically that takes me to another way of viewing the world called materialism. And in materialism, uh, material things are what compose our reality, which freaks a lot of religious people out. Um, but I just haven't seen evidence of non-material components of reality. I've never seen research or studies or observations that validate the idea that there are things in our universe that are non-material, right? The universe, when examined, behaves quite consistently, even in, at the quantum realm. Um, so people get hung up on the idea that I'm a materialist because materialism is so often associated with really dogmatic anti-theism, people who are against any ideas about God, especially a personal God. And I'll be honest, I am not a theist, although I am a Christian. I don't believe in, in God as some being, some sky man, or even sky person. 
That is not my understanding of God at all. Uh, but I, I can get behind some ideas of God, which is why I am not an atheist and certainly not an anti-theist. Uh, the way Einstein thought about God is as the beautiful elegance that creates the order in the cosmos, or in fact, is the order in our cosmos. Well, that seems like a perfectly plausible God, a God that you can even demonstrate exists with a high degree of certainty, right? Because of the way I view God through the lens of empiricism and materialism, many of my atheist friends and uh, some of the atheists who aren't fans of me online uh, accuse me of using sentimental language for physics <laughs> and and in doing so confuse religious people about who I really am and that that really doesn't bother me a bit uh, that's probably that's just true to some degree I, I do use very sentimental language for physics and cosmology um, but if you you know if you really look at what I believe about how the universe operates I think you'd find uh, most most atheists are quite comfortable with my beliefs. But <laughs> I am a Christian. I'm legitimately a Christian. Um, and Christianity is very important to me. But I'm a, I'm a mystic. When I think about spirituality, I am a mystic. And like all mystics, I don't believe that God can be described in language. God can only be experienced, right? I think that trying to tell someone about God or describe God is like trying to describe a color to someone who has never seen it. If I were to try to describe to you a color you had never seen, there's no language I could use because when I use the word green, I talk about leaves, right? I talk about, um, I don't know, Green cars, something else green, uh, a pool table, whatever. And because you've seen those things, we can arrive at what green is because we're using language to describe a shared experience. But without that shared experience, the language can't evoke that, right? So if you'd never seen a, a skyscraper, but you'd seen a four-story building, I could make you picture a skyscraper using language, I could say, well, think about that four-story building and imagine it just keeps going up and up and up into the sky as high almost as a mountain. Then you would understand what a skyscraper was even though you'd never seen one. But I cannot use that kind of extended metaphor to help you understand and experience a color that you've never seen. So it is with God. So it is with the divine. I've experienced God, but I can't describe that experience in any satisfactory way to another person. So I prefer to just sit with my experiences with God. Now, I'm a materialist, so if I look at possible explanations for my experiences with God, I think it's overwhelmingly likely that those experiences originate in my brain. And so what? That's where love originates, too. That's where beauty originates. That's where happiness originates. That's where friendship 
originates. That's where acts of solidarity that improve human life originate in our brains. So if God is a way that brains understand the world, I'm fine with that. I have a hope that God is more than that, but my confidence in that belief is nowhere near my confidence that Two plus two equals four. So I don't believe these ways of viewing the world, my my contemplative, mystical spirituality, and my empirical, materialist view of the cosmos. Because my empiricism, in fact, tells me our knowledge of the world is incomplete and possibly may always be. And that doesn't mean that I accept ideas without evidence in the absence of data. I am not a god of the gaps person. God is not that which science has not explained yet. It means I hold an open posture. I don't mind considering ideas people have about the universe that are unknown to the sciences. Considering, contemplating, holding with an open hand. More than that, we already know via science that spirituality can be healthy and enjoyable, a beautiful part of the human experience. And so I choose to participate. It doesn't mean that uh, I think someone is going to hell if they don't believe in my particular Uh, story about what the resurrection of Jesus means, or even if they believe Jesus was resurrected at all. I totally understand and, in fact, agree that it's most likely empirically that Jesus did not. But I lean into that story because it opens. It opens something in me. It opens something in me. But I don't let my embrace of of biblical narrative, um, I don't let it lead me to reject important understandings in science, like the way cosmology describes the development of the universe, or indeed what science tells us about human activity driving great peril in our ecology today. Drive some people crazy, I know, but it makes me a very happy person. It leads me to love others and care for them deeply. And uh, gosh, what more do I want out of a worldview? Now, if you want to dig deeper into this, and this has already been a very long answer to a question, uh, but my first book, Finding God in the Waves, is, is pretty much all about this, this tension between science and spirituality and my attempts to solve that in my own life in ways that hopefully are helpful guideposts for other people on the same journey. Uh, I'll have a link to where you can learn more about the book in the show notes this week on AskScienceMike.com. Of course, if you're trying to Google this, just Google Ask Science Mike episode 176 and uh, you'll get right there. Our next question came from Lucy, and she asks, 
Hey, Mike, I have a question for you. I'd love to know if there is a physiological link between grief and an increased sex drive. I can see that sex can be a temporary escape from pain or a release of tension, and that the loneliness of grief could prompt a desire to connect physically with someone else. But is there anything science can shed light on to further explain an increased sex drive at times of significant pain and loss, and whether it is a coping mechanism or a way of the body seeking to heal? It seems incongruous in part. Asking for a friend, a huge love to you. Come back to London soon. Okay, Lucy, uh, good to hear from you. (laughs) Lucy and I met at the Liturgist Gathering in London, and if you're wondering, if you come to Liturgist events, do I remember you later? Yes, I do. I think about all of you all the time. Uh, So let's start with the most important disclaimer for this question. I am not a therapist. I'm just not a therapist. I've read a lot of stuff, and uh, I've tried to ground my response here in a way that a a therapist who's listening uh, would say I haven't overstepped any bound, but I always want to remind people that I am not a therapist. As I research this question, two things are really normal during the grieving process. One is an increase in libido, and two is a decrease in libido. Of course, in libido here, we are talking about uh, your propensity to desire sex. Um, so during the grieving process, some people find their libido increases and other people find their libido decreases and both are normal and healthy and just fine. Don't worry about a decrease or increase in libido if you are grieving. There is no wrong way to grieve. There is no time frame. There is no expectation of a cycle or a movement, or any of the things we talk about. There are stages of grief, but when we understand those to be linear and sequential, we do ourselves a disservice. Grief moves in a cycle. Some people wake up one day and just feel fine. Others don't, and neither is right or wrong. And your grieving process may be different every time you grieve, and there's nothing wrong with that. What I'm saying is don't judge yourself regarding any sexual desires or changes in libido while grieving. It's just part of the process. Is it a coping mechanism? Yes. Is it a way for the body seeking to heal? Yes. (laughs) Coping mechanisms aren't bad. Coping mechanisms can become maladaptive but they are not bad and they are not necessarily maladaptive, right? If I have lost someone I care about and I feel better eating cake, there's nothing wrong with that unless I start eating cake constantly to a degree that it impairs my quality of living. Well, sex would be the same way. There's nothing wrong with sex being a part of your grieving process as long as you are having sex in a way that doesn't negatively impact your quality of life, right? So if you became very, uh, if you're having a lot of unprotected sex with multiple partners you don't know well, well, that's maladaptive, right? That We'd be concerned there 
about how this coping mechanism was having potential health consequences, right? But that's, that's not even a judgment of the coping mechanism itself. Simply responding to the fact that we need to have a holistic view of our physical and psychological health. And of course, sex makes a great coping mechanism because sex can make you feel something, even feel powerful, vibrant sensation and feeling during the numbness of situational depression. Often when we grieve, we stop really feeling anything at all. The world's colors fade. And sex turns the saturation on our TV set back up, right? Sex can also help us cope with the separation anxiety that comes from loss. Feeling connected to someone in response to a connection that you can't feel anymore. So yes, there is a known link between the grieving process and an increased sex drive, just as there is a known link between grief and a decreased sex drive. And both are normal and healthy and acceptable. On the show notes here, if you'd like to read a little bit more, I've got a link to an article on Psychology Today called Five Things They Don't Tell You About Grief. And I'd encourage you to check that out because if there's anything I know about grief in Western society, it's that uh, we often have unrealistic expectations associated with it. Billy Waters asks, can you talk about quantum teleportation? What has been demonstrated and what is theoretical science fiction? (laughs) Oh man, I love a good science question. Uh, And great news, quantum teleportation is absolutely real and is not in any way science fiction, at least not anymore. Scientists have already teleported particles over really impressive distances, including into orbit and back down to the Earth's surface. So that's kind of cool. I mean, we're doing uh, quantum teleportation, and I mean we, the human species, (laughs) at distances of thousands of miles. That's really cool. Um, But there's probably an important thing to clarify here when we talk about quantum teleportation because quantum teleportation does not involve physically teleporting a particle at all. So if you're teleporting, you know, an electron or a photon uh, or a quark or any other quantum particle, uh, you have a particle A and at the end of the teleportation, particle A is, is still where it started. <laughs> so, oh my gosh, how do we teleport something without moving it? And, and uh, moving it's a rough term for something happening at the quantum level, but I'm doing my best to keep this accessible. Uh, what we do instead is teleport or transport the state of one particle to another particle. Okay, so if you had electron A here in Los Angeles and it had a particular state associated with it, and then I use quantum teleportation to teleport the state of that particle to photon B, which is in New York City, that is exactly the same as if I were to actually teleport the particle because 
all electrons are identical. All photons are identical, save their you know, individual state. So, for example, you can have a state on a quark called a spin. Uh, so if you give two quarks the same spin, those quarks are completely identical. So it's not cheating to teleport the state of a particle instead of a particle itself. The, the end result is exactly the same. It'd be ex just like if you had a magical relativity-defying <laughs> teleportation device that moved actual particles themselves you'd get the same result as you do by teleporting the state of a subatomic particle. So that's how quantum teleportation works. That's what's real. What's real is that we can teleport subatomic particles by teleporting their state across great distances today. Theoretically, and now we move into what is currently sci-fi, that could scale up to whole atoms or even whole molecules or even larger organizations of matter. Uh, and that would be cool. And there's great promise there. Um, but some big unanswered questions, like what happens to the original? If you could teleport an entire person, uh, it's, it's possible you'd have to like destroy the original person. Um, what does that mean for that person? Is that is that murder? You know, that's uh that's a question we may face one day. I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever be able to do teleportation on that scale. Uh, there's a lot of problems to solve. So today, what's been demonstrated is quantum teleportation at pretty impressive distances. And what is science fiction? Anything else. <laughs> um and if you'd like to dig more into that, check out a link I've got in the show notes called Quantum Teleportation is Real, but it's not what you think. Our next question came from Allison, and it reads, How do you interact with friends or family members who are conservative fundamentalists and are lovingly concerned that you are sinning by reading the Bible differently than they do? It's frustrating when they continue to want to discuss hot-button topics like homosexuality, never as a method of understanding my perspective, but instead with the purpose of changing my mind and helping me understand the truth. Allison, I imagine that many people listening to this podcast have this question and uh, are very familiar with this situation. Um, and I, I, I base that on a little more than intuition. This is something that people frequently say to me and uh, the, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what to call it, the line we do after the event for people to talk to me. That is kind of weird. <laughs> it's weird because it, it feels strange to me that people wait in a line to see me. But um, I do enjoy the conversations. And this question comes up all the time. How do you deal with you know, fundamentalist friends and family, uh, you know, trying to correct your thinking or rebuke you with the Bible or all of those things that happen. By the way, if you're listening and you are a very conservative religious person, understand that your efforts are not terribly effective. <laughs> the person you're trying to win over uh, comes to my events and asks me how to cope with you. They aren't persuaded. Um, so here's kind of been my approach. 
I, in recent years, have learned to set boundaries on relationships that allow me to be a healthy person. That means for me, I'm always open to conversation. I'm always willing to discuss how I've arrived at my positions, and I'm always willing to listen to thoughtful, non-judgmental presentations of another's viewpoint. Always. But I don't do Trojan horse conversations over coffee anymore. I don't let someone under false pretenses say we need to connect or uh, they miss me or, um, or that they'd like to hear my understanding of something and then arrive for an ambush where there's a Bible on the table and uh, 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 it's happened too many times. Uh, I won't do it anymore. If you invite me to lunch and I see a Bible on the table and you tell, you know, you start a screed, I guarantee you I'm going to order a cocktail <laughs> or a beer uh, or or politely leave. That's probably what I should do. I, I shouldn't be snarky. Um, it's a matter of setting boundaries. And for those of us that came from conservative religious traditions, Setting boundaries is hard. That's not something we were taught to do. Um, I actually think that's one of the sociological mechanisms that enables fundamentalist religion is the erosion of personal agency and boundary setting. So some of us have to catch up uh, and make up for lost time in learning how to set boundaries and relationships. But there's nothing wrong with you saying the terms by which you will be in relationship with another person, just as there's nothing wrong with them saying the terms they require for relationship. And maybe sometimes it just doesn't work. There are simply a lot of people that I used to be very close to that I don't talk to anymore. I don't hold any animosity toward them. There's no ill will. There's just no reason for us to talk. I have some friends who are very close friends, and every time we got together, the conversation moved to a place where they wanted to talk to me about my approach to the Bible or my, quote, false teachings, unquote. You know, that's not a relationship. I'm not your uh, prospect. I'm not your lost sheep. And so for people who could only relate to me in that way, I didn't call them anymore. And uh, when they called me, I made it clear that I would not have those conversations anymore. And then they stopped calling me. And I lost many dozens of very close and dear friends. And there was an intense period of grief but now things are a lot better because letting those friendships fade created the room and created the space for me to form new friendships with people who could be in relationship with me. And that's not to imply that there's some uniformity of belief on political or religious matters in my friend community now. There is not there's a wild diversity in belief systems 
among my friends now. But what all my friends have in common these days is a live and let live, non-judgmental posture toward the belief systems of other people. And that's what I need in close friendships now. And people who are not able to do that, I'm not able to be in close relationship with. And I've just decided that's who I am now. That may not be, Allison, what's right for you. So the tough thing is doing the work of learning about yourself, of taking care of your mental health, and assessing what your needs are in relationship and what best supports you and the ways you're most equipped to support others. I know what about me makes me a really great friend, and I know what about me makes me a challenging friend. And I I invest in relationships where that mix works well for me and for the other person. Life is not a popularity contest. I'm not happiest when I have the highest absolute number of friend connections. I personally am happiest when I have the most honest, vulnerable, and supportive relationships, even if they are few in number. I love hard conversations. I have friends who talk to me and call me out on matters of racism and sexism and ableism. My life is full of accountability, perhaps more full of accountability than it has ever been. But that accountability is framed in mutual respect, mutual support, and non-judgment. And those are the boundaries that allow me to thrive. Amy had a question. It reads like this. Hi, Mike. I asked this one a couple of Thanksgivings ago when you answered all the Patreon questions, but it was never on the show. Perhaps it got lost in the Patreon comment vortex. Sorry, Amy. (laughs) Sometimes I do lose track of questions. I'm curious how you, as a married Enneagram 9, maintain your own identity. I'm 43 and have never been able to have a romantic relationship in which I didn't lose myself. I'm an introverted nine-wing, one sexual variant. Neutral good, haha. <laughs> so I've shied away from them to maintain a sense of self. It seems to me like I might like to have a long-term partnership or marriage someday. So I'm curious what steps you take to keep your identity separate from Jenny and your daughters. I've been in talk therapy done programs, attended seminars, etc., but I tend to keep all interpersonal relationships at arm's length because I feel chaotic and like I can't find myself in the noisy den of other people's presence. Any advice from your experience would be appreciated. (laughs) Peace, love, and entropy. (laughs) Oh gosh, I love that sign-off. It sounds familiar. Uh, Amy, let me start by saying that uh, the Enneagram is fun and can be helpful, but it's unscientific. Um, and, And I see that you, like me, are pretty deep in the Enneagram world because you're talking about not only your wing, 
but your subtype. <laughs> and uh, I won't unpack all of that right now because um, that's just a lot. That that would be a whole podcast. We are thinking about doing a liturgist podcast on the subtypes, so that might happen in the future. Um, it, it, mainly pending our friend Annie Diamond's um, calendar availability. If we do that episode, we'd like her to be on it because she's fun and she's brilliant. So uh, I'm going to talk about it like as you requested from my experience. And in my experience, boy, I have a tendency to merge a lot. Um, that's very easy for me to kind of amoeba-like meld into the relational dynamic defined by another person. But I've also got this really mean uh, nonconformist streak, which I understand is pretty common in nines, that lets me hold my own space. I like to go off and do things on my own, in my way. If uh, I'm walking down the sidewalk with a group of friends, I will either walk considerably ahead of or considerably behind the group. I'm very likely to strike off in a a completely different direction without informing the group. If the group moves in a direction I'm not interested in going, I just keep going my way. I don't mention anything to anyone because I don't want to change their actions. I'm just not interested myself. So that has helped me hold my own space. It also helps me to have a lot of close, deep relationships of significance beyond my marriage. I just have, you know... I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 really, really close friendships in my life. And all that merging in different directions lets me find myself and lets me not be defined just by my relationship to Jenny, which obviously my relationship with Jenny is the most significant relationship in my life. And I also don't buy into the notions I once held of marriage. You know, some of the norms I once thought healthy as an evangelical now seem possessive, exploitive, and codependent. So today I view Jenny, my wife, as my partner, someone to walk through life with. Yes, my friend. Yes, my lover. But a separate person with her own dreams and her own challenges that are not mine to create or to solve. My job with Jenny is to love her and to support her, and she does the same with me as we go about our lives. And much of our lives we do together, but some things we don't. I wonder if perhaps the problem is not with your nineness. I wonder if the struggle you're having is the same one I've had. Working through and in some ways letting go of kind of the dominant narratives about romance and marriage in our culture. I don't know. A vow to death do us part, I own you, you own me. I don't think people can own people, not even in marriage. Every day I wake up, I make a new commitment to Jenny that day. 
and just for that day. And I found that committing to a person and not an institution has been more rewarding for me, more fulfilling, and helps me kind of let go of a lot of the marriage assumptions that reinforce patriarchy in our society. I think, Amy, if you are happy single, be single. But I think if you're drawn to romantic relationships, maybe you need to spend some time, maybe, I don't know, (laughs) um, examining your assumptions about what romantic relationships are in the first place and figuring out what a relationship would look like for you that allowed you to have your needs fulfilled, allowed you to be supportive of another person, but also allowed you to maintain your own identity. Yeah, but what do I know? <laughs> I'm a college dropout. Okay, Joe asks our last question this week. And his question is, why don't organisms with the shortest reproductive cycles rule the world? It seems to me that simple organisms with rapid reproduction should evolve more quickly than more complex organisms with longer lifespans. If that's the case, shouldn't those species have a wider range of adaptations to select from uh, for suitability for their environments, giving them a serious evolutionary advantages over those of us that don't breed like rabbits. In other words, why isn't mosquitoes' ability to dodge evolving faster than my ability to swat them? Sorry if this is Natural Selection 101. My Christian education sadly excluded that course from its science curriculum. Joe, thank you for asking that question. I started this podcast to try to help people who grew up in Christianity get a better understanding of science, and then all the other stuff happened. Then people started asking me questions about faith, and people started asking me advice questions that I so often don't feel qualified to answer. I do answer to honor the question, but I I very often feel uncomfortable. But your question is why I started this podcast, and I hardly get any questions like this, and I love them. Because this isn't an obvious question, and understanding it really does help someone understand what evolution is much better. And evolution, the lens we look through is not an individual animal, but the viability of a species. The viability of individuals does create the viability of a species, but there's multiple strategies to achieve that viability. So the first thing I would say is who says the shortest reproductive cycles don't already rule the world? My friend, bacteria are killing it. (laughs) I mean, bacteria are incredibly successful. They, They occupy more niches in our ecosystems than maybe any other organism. And they have really rapid reproductive cycles. One of the most intelligent species on the planet, Homo sapiens, us, has been in a multi-human generation war with bacteria, and bacteria have fared pretty well. 
pretty well indeed. And I won't go into all that because that would get us way off topic. But bacteria have fast reproductive cycles and are doing quite well. But let's kind of step back and look at, literally look at mosquitoes and humans to understand what's at play here. And, le- and to do that, we've got to talk about R slash K selection theory. This is a, an idea that kind of became popular in the 1970s. It has some limitations, so it's not as discussed today, but I still think it's instructive for this question and understanding generally how evolution functions. So RK selection theory is the idea that there are two major reproductive strategies for different species. Here's a very simple summary of the two. The R strategy is to have lots of offspring that grow quickly and with very little parental intervention. And the K strategy is to have fewer offspring that grow slowly but have a lot of support from their parents and grow to be very strong competitors. So in an ecological niche that is crowded, the K strategy can really help. In ecological niches that aren't as crowded, the R strategy can be a great strategy for a species to go. So in this model, a mosquito would be an R-selected species. Mosquitoes spawn thousands of offspring and make no further investment in their survival. And humans are, boy, almost like the (laughs) ultimate example of a K-selected species. Human mothers have you know, one or two infants at a time and then make a 13 to 18 year investment in their development. But an adult human is a very strong competitor indeed, which means one versus one mosquito versus human. The human's going to win every single time, even counting for malaria, (laughs) which is that gets back into the strength of bacteria and uh, our selection. Uh, but if take malaria out of the picture and a human is going to beat a mosquito. But there's so many mosquitoes because of their reproductive strategy that it's not actually that big a deal if a mosquito gets swatted to the overall mosquito population. They're, they're in a given area are likely to be many more mosquitoes than human beings. Anyone that's ever uh, camped near a swamp knows what I'm talking about. The mosquitoes far outnumber the humans, and the humans simply can't swat enough of them to meaningfully impact their numbers. So if, for example, mosquitoes developed larger brains to try to be more effective at dodging the slaps that humans make, they'd be moving more towards a K strategy because they couldn't breed so quickly. Larger brained animals need more calories and often need more parental supervision to grow. So mosquitoes strategy through evolution is to just have a lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of babies. And hopefully enough of them survive to make the next species. And they do. Mosquitoes are incredibly successful. 
as are human beings. So both strategies work and have different pros and cons. And so evolution uses both. And the reason RK selection theory is not as popular as it once was is because so many species use a mix of the two strategies. Think about trees. Trees have lots and lots and lots of offspring. My gosh, my allergies are terrible right now. We had actual rain this winter in Los Angeles, and all the plants are busily making more plants out there to the detriment of my allergies. But a tree, gosh, they grow into very strong competitors. Some of the largest, in fact, the largest organisms on this planet are trees. So uh, a tree is an intense competitor in its, its ecology with few natural predators, if any natural predators. I don't think a sequoia has a natural predator, right? That's a big tree. Most animals can't do a thing to a sequoia once it gets set up. So is that R selection or is that K selection? Well, doesn't really fit either. The point here. Is not a defense of RK selection theory, but an understanding that that there is no single right way for a species to be successful in evolution. Therefore, tries many different strategies, and that's what results in the biofilm on this planet. All these different strategies allow life to adapt to a planet that's constantly changing, and it takes R and K selected species to roll with those changes. There's another episode of Ask Science Mike in the books. I'd like to thank all of you patrons who submitted questions. Thanks for making this show possible. I'd like to thank all of you patrons who didn't submit questions. It helps me out a lot. Thank you. If you like Ask Science Mike, you've got a buck or five bucks a month. Uh, I'd love to see you on our Patreon page. Just go to AskScienceMike.com and click the Join Me on Patreon button to learn more. I'd like to thank Greg Nordine for his tireless work as the producer and sound designer of Ask Science Mike. And I'd like to thank all of you for listening. You know, I've seen a lot of new listeners the last few weeks. Welcome. Uh, and we'll keep this party going. So thanks for listening, everybody. And I'll talk to you next week. Uh-huh.